Please stand for the reading of God's word. It's hard to resist uh, not saying, here's the brainwashing from uh, Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The grass withers and the flowers fall. New Testament reading is from Colossians 2, 6 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. The word of the Lord. Some of you receive on Saturday night a prayer. And if you would like to receive that and you don't, let me know. I would love to add you to the list. Last night, for the first time in about three years or something. I didn't send it. Thank you. One person noticed. Thank you. Someone at Lula asked me if I was okay. I was glad that they noticed that it wasn't there, but we went to a wedding last night. Child of the church, Bailey Pretty. From the time she was 12, I think they've been here. And normally on Saturday nights, I don't do stuff. Secondly, even if I was doing something, I would always remember to send the prayer. But I had asked the Lord not to feel so anxious and heavy. And the balls won. And there was a happy wedding. And there were all these people. And I realized at 1030 as we were walking away, oh, no, I didn't send out the prayer. So you got your chance right now to make it up. Because I didn't send it out. But we need to pray. We want God's help to speak to us, and I will get back on track next week. I hate missing, I hate it that I forgot that. I didn't want to bother you at 1030. I'm sure there were some of you still awake. Let's pray. 
Lord, will you hear your people hungry, hungry to know that it's all true? Hungry to have their doubts silenced. Hungry to have some kind of rejuvenation for the parts that have gotten old and overly familiar. So will you hear us each as we ask you to dazzle us in some way? To let us be like those first century recipients of your teaching who were astonished because you taught as one who had authority. Let that authority be evident. Hear us as we ask for your words to us now. Lord, it's a help to me to remember that your gathered people are an object of preoccupation for you. That you have this unquenchable determination to oppose whoever opposes them. And you have this zeal to scatter their enemies and to nourish them, to feed them even as you cause them to hunger. And so I'm asking for you to do that just now. I'm asking that everyone here would be glad that they came, that they might hear something that makes them realize that they're not just hearing from me, that you've decided to take these words, run them through me, but then in some magical, mysterious, Holy Spirit way that you would make these words come alive, that new things would dawn on us that are healing and hopeful and energizing. Oh, create new life in us. Make us alive. Make us alive. And we are mindful, Lord, even as we gather together of the travails in the Middle East right now, a place of great unrest often, but we pray that you would put an end to the wicked, the violence of the wicked, that you would establish your peace. You would bring sorrows that are heaven sent. I mean, you'd bring comfort to the sorrows that exist that are heaven sent. And we also ask that you would let our congregation be the recipients of the staffing and the pastoral provision that you want us to have that would be a mutual benefit to this man and his family and also to us. We thank you for the great associate pastors you've given us in the past. And we say, will you do it again? Now, will you speak to us again? Will you make us glad with your presence? Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. Well, I mentioned that we were at a wedding last night, and when the youth pastor of the groom said his lovely words, walking this young woman and her groom through the vows, in between the vows and the giving of the ring, he said this thing. I'd never heard anybody say this thing, but he said this thing. He said, Do you understand the significance of the covenant that you are making today? I don't think it was a rhetorical question. 
It was a question to which the appropriate answer in that moment was, yes, I do suppose. Do you understand the significance of the covenant that you are making today? But I wanted to shout out a little bit and be like, no, 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 it's a trick question. You can't ask them that. Of course they don't understand the significance of the covenant they are making today. There's no possible way for them to understand the significance of the covenant they are making today. You could say, do you understand that this covenant you're making today is rather significant? It's mighty important. It's quite a big deal. You can ask all those things, but do you understand the significance of the covenant you're making today? They said yes, and they meant it, kind of. Well, they don't know if they meant it yet. But this kind of stuff happens. This is why you make vows at the beginning. Because these vows say, okay, we're entering into this life where we've made promises with our future self and we're going to discover the significance of the covenant that we're making today. And we've promised that we're going to stick around and find out what the significance is, even if we don't fully get it now. Because there's no way to get it now because you don't know how each other is going to become. You don't know what life is going to throw at you. You don't know what it's going to be like for them to always be there or for him to become like he is. You don't know. And you don't know what wonders await you. You don't know what sorrows await you. That's why you make these promises at the beginning. Well, I was thinking about that because in some ways what the apostle is urging the Colossians to do as we continue traipsing through this letter while he is in prison, reassuring a group of people that he has not met, but he has heard from their church planter, Epaphras, about some detours that might be thrown into their mix, that might be causing them to veer off course a little bit, He says to them, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus, says Lord, continue to live in him. He recognizes something at the beginning of this letter that they have been acted upon by God and they have entered into a covenant with him. Epaphras is full of excitement about that and so is Paul. He says, I thank God all the time. I keep on thanking God all the time because of your faith. And the love that you have for all the saints and the hope that you have stored up for you from heaven. And all of this is a sign that that God's work is active in you guys. Something has happened to you. You have entered into a covenant with you. He has summoned you and called you and made you alive. And so now you're in this relationship with the king of the universe who's making all things new. You're finding out what it means to be a person. You're no longer outside of God's people. You're one of them. There's a significance. And so Epaphras, when they heard the preaching, he could have said, do you understand the significance of the covenant that you're making today? And they could have said, yes, And Paul would have said, well, there's no way you can yet. Not all of it. But if you don't stay and find out, you're going to miss out on some of this significance. You're going to get deflated. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get worn out. You're going to be susceptible to any number of compelling but empty offers of something better. 
And so Paul says, okay, you've received Christ before. And when he says received, he means there's this teaching that got transmitted, that got handed down. He says it in Corinthians. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures. On the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. There's this content that the Messiah came into the world. He lived this perfect life. He died. All of this was forecasted and enacted in Israel, and he was the true Israel. He was this true king that the people of Israel had always looked forward to, but had never yet found a living human king whose shoulders were broad enough to feel the messianic picture. And here this Christ came, dying and rising, and now summoning a people to himself. And Paul says, last of all, abnormally born as I was, I was called into this with a grace that was not without effect. And so he knows they've started. They've started in with Jesus. They've started in a relationship. They believe that he is the king of the whole universe, that he's making things new, that he's the one who dwells in them. And he says, continue. Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. One of the problems that can stand in the way when you have made a start with Jesus, and you guys are here even on fall break, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the faithful ones, the faithful remnant here. Is that you can, you can get ground down by the wheels of living. You can, you can start to wonder, hey, I've heard these things about Jesus, but they don't seem so very true to me. And you become vulnerable to other options. And I want to just offer for you to think about that in a way that will coalesce with what Paul's saying here. Two impediments for you continuing. Two impediments for you staying and finding out the significance of Jesus in your life. Staying and finding out that he's better than you thought. That he offers more than you've yet received. One of the impediments is just boredom. I know that your life is configured in such a way and there are very clever people around you who have made sure that you don't actually experience boredom at any time. But that's the problem. Alan Jacobs writes this essay, and he describes a participant in the Capitol riot, 81-year-old Army veteran Gary Wickersham, who explained when he was being sentenced by the judge that he participated in the riot because, quote, you just got bored sitting at home. The poet Ann Carson once wrote, I will do anything to avoid boredom. It's the task of a lifetime. Jacobs makes this argument that one of the things that happens in our time, and he's not like some fundy wackadoo, He's the head of an honors college at Baylor University, writes about technology. He's one of the smartest guys I ever read. He says, what if, 
What if the endless doom scrolling we do, what if the endless engagement mindlessly so we don't have to feel the weight of boredom so we don't have to ask questions of ourselves or of our lives and wondered like Ivan Iliak have I lived my life right am I living it right is is this what it's for is this what I'm for and what if instead we when we get bored we we scroll and we scroll and we scroll and we find things that make us feel alive and we think it's just dopamine hits that's why we keep coming back. That's the physical explanation. Is there, is there a spiritual explanation why we can't stay away? The apostle and Jesus and all the writers of the Bible think a different thing about the world than most of us think about the world. They think that there are powers and authorities and elemental spirits behind things. We recognize sometimes when these rats in the wall chew their way out through the drywall and out into the public like Hamas this week. We recognize that there's times when error, when evil makes its expression very poignant and pronounced and horribly. But there's other subtler ways, perhaps, that we're being acted on. Have you ever, have you ever sat and had a had a scroll session on Twitter or Instagram and come away like refreshed and thanking God. Like, I'm so glad I spent my time that way. Now, I feel like I can conquer the world. Or do you feel like, man, everybody's life is better than mine and my life sucks, stinks. I shouldn't say that. Stinks. Horrible. I didn't sleep very much last night. Or do you get demotivated? Or you get unquenchably angry. Or you come away as you've gotten infected. And I think that's the best way to describe it. And I'm, I'm one of you, so. You come away having gotten infected with this sort of internet culture where you start to think that people can just invent themselves. That your identity is not something that's rooted in a community, it's rooted in a body, it's rooted in actual relationships, and it's now, it's just something you invent. You can be a boy, you can be a girl, you, you're, you identify as this or that or what, and you just make up stuff. And it's not rooted in anything. It's imaginary. It's ethereal. And it makes so much sense. And if everybody doesn't get on board with it, you have a right to be mad and offended, and it's all dream world. We are not self-made. But when we live in that world, it feels like we are. And I'm wondering, in our boredom, where as Screwtape says, here's what you want to do with your patient. You know, the senior devil says, here's what you want to do with your Christian patient. Get him spending his time in such a way that he neither does what he ought or, or what he wants. You ever felt like that? Wait, why am I spending time like this? I don't even want to be doing this. I sure ought not to be doing this. And you just get swept away. You just get captured. You just get lured away through no particular intention. But you're the object of someone else's intention. Paul insists here and in other places that we have we have spiritual enemies. That's our real enemy. And in our times, the biggest way that enemy works is by convincing us that enemy doesn't exist. 
There are two equal and opposite errors about the devil, C.S. Lewis said. One is to have a disproportionate interest in them, and the other is to not think they exist. And the devil is happy with either. But most of us think they don't exist. But what if, what if you're being acted on in ways, not being possessed or something, just being acted on in ways that, that cause you to be constantly angry, that cause you to get your eye off the ball, that cause you to be in a state of enmity against other people and a dare for other people to treat you the way you think they ought to and you're getting malformed of soul while it happens. And then you hear Christ say through Paul, as you received me as the Lord. How about this? Continue in me. Live in me. Be rooted and built up in me. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. See, Paul is going to go on to say that Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, which is to say like all the presence of God is in him. And there's all these fine-sounding arguments of what might teach people how to live and what to be and what to want. But he says those are often very empty. And one of the ways you can tell that you're being acted upon by something other than the king who offers fullness to your emptiness is if it results in you overflowing with thankfulness. One of the hindrances in our boredom is that we, we're constantly looking for something to fill us. And if it doesn't, we just look for more that we're insatiable, not thankful. And Paul says that's one of the great dangers. That's one of the signs, the most pronounced signs of spiritual decay in Romans 1 is living in this magnificent world and stopping to give thanks, refusing to give thanks. No longer giving thanks, thinking that you're the author of your life, that you're the term, determiner of your fate, that you're the one who gave yourself all the money and gave yourself all the health and gave yourself all the resources that you've got and all the connections that you have, that you're the author of it all and fails to see that it's a given thing, a received thing, and that we're the objects of the king who defeats death and who destroys everything that would oppose us. So boredom is a way that can derail us from staying and finding out, is there more to Christ than meets the eye? There's more than we have yet realized. Are we giving our attention to finding out? What if he's true? What if he offers more than we thought? And the other thing that might keep you from staying and finding out the significance of being with Christ, of continuing in him, is just this uneasiness that you've heard me speak of before. And now I know I'm probably not talking to most of you. I can remember, I can remember being in seminary and someone teaching about the holiness of God in my stomach being like, just hurting. Where did that come from? People talking about Jesus or having moments even now where I have these thoughts inside of my infidelity to Christ, my lack of devotion to him, my lack of obedience, my lack of love, my lack of care for the poor, my lack, my lack, my deficit, my deficit, and 
You know what it does to me? I'm sure I'm alone in this. It's just having a little self-monologue here. But what it does to me is it creates this uneasiness that makes me think, I don't know that I want to go toward him because that's dangerous. Christ is dangerous. I get stuck in this aura, this atmosphere that chokes me out, that points and accuses. And it takes some work for me to remember, no, 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 no. This isn't given to me by Christ. He doesn't want to keep me away. This is given to me by an enemy and by stuff within me that wants to, that wants to stay away from him. I have an enemy who wants me to stay away from him. He wants me to draw near. And so Paul would say, hey, look, in him, you were circumcised. In other words, your sinful nature was cut off. You were baptized into his life. So his death means your death to sin. His resurrection means your new life, that you belong to him. And he forgave us all our sins and made us alive with Christ. There is nothing against you, Paul says. That is a remedy for you when you get to wondering, can I go to him? Can I keep running to him, knowing as I do the failures of my life? More than you realize, I think that is one of the big pronounced difficulties of the Christian life, is the initial exuberance. And then what do you do with continued failure? What do you do with the fact that you don't live up? And Paul says, well, one thing you do is you don't focus on the failure. You focus on him who absorbed it. Who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Continue in him. Be rooted in him. Established in him. Be made sturdy in him. Do not let your uneasiness keep you from him. Your uneasiness is a sign that you need to go to him, not away from him. Your boredom is a sign that you need to go to him and not away from him. Stay and find out the significance, says Paul, of what Jesus as Lord of the universe, but also Lord of you, means. The other day I came home, which I tend to do, and when I come, we have this little dog, you know, some of you know Huck, you've heard of Huck. Our neighbor Dick Griffith says, uh, I was a little Cuban, because he's Havanese, he's from Cuba, S de Cuba. And Huck really likes it when, well, anybody, it's not, I don't think it's really personal, but I'm going to say he just really likes it when I come home, but I think it's just like when people come home. And you know this feeling, it's just allegedly why people have dogs, some of them. They like that excitement. You could just trick them, you know, just walk out the door, come back in, new exuberance, come out. They just never run out of exuberance. But one of the things that's very fascinating to me is the other day, and this happens when when Kylie was cooking dinner, and there was chicken. There was chicken out. And Huck can smell stuff bigger and better and more pronouncedly than we can. And so, like, when I come home, he does this obligatory, he acts so excited for about 0.3 seconds, but then he bolts back. It's the only time he bolts back that quickly to the kitchen where he is standing at attention, watching Kathy to make sure that there is no moment when she accidentally drops some chicken. 
And he knows, and you know, sometimes she drops chicken on purpose, but acts like it's an accident. But he stands there, and he watches, and he is taught. He's like a soldier on the ready, and he's just watching all 13 pounds of him. Every muscle in his body is tensed up. And if there is going to be a falling piece of chicken, he's going to catch it. He's not going to just gonna hit the ground. He's going to catch it in the air. That dude is ready. And I think the apostle has experienced something from Jesus. He says his energy works in me so powerfully that his grace to me was not without effect. The surpassing greatness of knowing him means I'm not worried about what I have to get up, give up because I want to know him. I have this inexhaustible desire to know more of him. And he has this unending, enduring willingness to respond to that desire. And so he would say, be like that little dog who keeps waiting for Christ to give him more. Just knows, oh, who knows what Christ is going to do today? Who knows what Christ is going to give me today? Who knows how Christ is going to fuel me today and work in me today, work with me today? Who knows how Christ is going to oppose my opposition today? Who knows? But I'm going to find out. I'm going to continue with him. I'm going to stay and find out the enduring significance of being in covenant with him, of belonging to him. And I'm going to wait like that dog waits for chicken to fall. I'm going to wait not for chicken to fall, but for his presence to come, for his help to be mediated, for his love to be brokered, for his hope to be installed, for his remedies to be offered, for his praise to be put in me, for his solace to be supplied. I'm going to wait and I'm going to continue and I'm going to keep looking to him and trust that the biblical witness is not trying to trick me. I'm not going to listen to the boredom and the uneasiness that would try to keep me away. I'm going to stay clear of that which works anger in me, of that which works dullness in me. And I'm instead going to draw near to those people and places and practices where I find I find that the Savior is releasing wanted gifts. Wendell Berry in one of his stories speaks of a little boy who learned much from this older man on a farm in Kentucky and he said that little boy had an inexhaustible wanting to know. He was always asking questions, always wanting to participate. You might have had a little boy like that or a little kid like that, or you might have been a little kid like that. Hey, can I come? Can I do that? Can I try that? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why does he say that? Why does he look like that? Why is, he, why is she doing that? I like it. Asking millions of questions, wanting to know, and never being able to stop wanting to know. And he said that the man had this enduring willingness to respond. Paul knows that the Savior who has disarmed and shamed the powers that are arrayed against us has taken away all the threats and neutralized them about judgment that we have for knowing that we haven't lived up to God's standard. They're taken away. We're forgiven. 
because of his work, can say with earnestness, continue, stay and find out. Have an inexhaustible wanting to know of this Savior who is enduringly willing to respond to your wanting. None of us knows the significance yet fully of belonging to Jesus, but I can assure you there is more than you've yet discovered. That's the fun of it. That's what Lucy discovered of Aslan that each year she grew. Aslan seemed bigger, even though he didn't change in size. She just learned more about him. Her perception just widened. Oh, may we be like little Havanese dogs, standing taut, waiting for our master to give us everything we need, going to him, staying put, and finding out the significance of being in covenant with him. Amen.